Journeying with Newman, The Path to Sainthood. Newman on Christian Doctrine. Greetings, I'm Dr. Andrew Mazaros, lecturer in systematic theology at Ireland's Pontifical University, St. Patrick's College, Maynooth. It is a distinct privilege to represent Maynooth in this podcast because one of its celebrated ecclesiastical historians and later president of the college, Dr. Charles Russell, was an intimate and influential friend of Newman's. In fact, in his Apologia, Newman pays tribute to Russell, writing of the Maynooth president, quote, He had perhaps more to do with my conversion than anyone else. As a dogmatic theologian who wrote his doctoral dissertation on doctrinal development, I have chosen a passage from Newman's essay on the development of Christian doctrine. In that great work, Newman sets out to account for how it is that the Church's understanding of revelation, given once and for all, can grow and develop over time. For any observer, but especially for the historian, it is undeniable that, from the apostolic period to the present day, there have been additions or accretions to the Christian tradition. Doctrines, for example, have become more elaborate and precise. Church structures have stabilized, and liturgical and devotional practices have increased and diversified. The crux of doctrinal development, however, is whether or not these additions or accretions are the legitimate offspring, as it were, of the Christian tradition. Like a genealogist, the Catholic theologian asks whether these additions belong to the same family. They need not be direct descendants, so to speak. They could be a more distant relation, a nephew, a cousin, or even a second cousin. But what remains crucial is whether or not they all belong to the one Christian family. These doctrines are members of one family, and suggestive, or correlative, or confirmatory, or illustrative of each other. The Incarnation is the antecedent of the doctrine of mediation, and the archetype both of the sacramental principle and of the merits of saints. From the doctrine of mediation follow the Atonement, the Mass, the merits of martyrs and saints, their invocation and cultus. From the sacramental principle come the sacraments properly so called, the unity of the Church and the Holy See as its type and centre, the authority of councils, the sanctity of rites, the veneration of holy places, shrines, images, vessels, furniture and vestments. Of the sacraments, baptism is developed into confirmation on the one hand, into penance, purgatory and indulgences on the other, and the Eucharist into the real presence, adoration of the host, resurrection of the body and the virtue of relics. Again, the doctrine of the sacraments leads to the doctrine of justification, justification to that of original sin, original sin to the merit of celibacy. Nor do these separate developments stand independent of each other, but by cross-relations they are connected and grow together while they grow from one. The Mass and real presence are parts of one. The veneration of saints and their relics are parts of one. Their intercessory power and the purgatorial state, and again the Mass and that state, are correlative. Celibacy is the characteristic mark of monachism and of the priesthood. You must accept the whole or reject the whole. Attenuation does but enfeeble, and amputation mutilate. It is trifling to receive all but something which is as integral as any other portion, 
And, on the other hand, it is a solemn thing to accept any part, for before you know where you are, you may be carried on by a stern logical necessity to accept the whole. This is characteristically dense writing on Newman's part, but his main point is that the body of Christian doctrine is precisely that, a body, which risks mutilation when one or another doctrine is rejected. To return to the genealogical metaphor, all of these doctrines, like merit, mass, and purgatory, can trace their lineage back to what Newman calls the Christian idea. Because we can trace their lineage back to certain other doctrinal ancestors, we see not only that they are related, but also that some Christian doctrines are dependent on others that preceded them and are generated quite naturally from them, akin to how the existence of one generation depends on its forebears. For Newman, then, legitimate developments pass a genealogical test of sorts. Their lineage can be traced back, their DNA identified through historical and theological reasoning. The sacraments, for example, mediate grace in a visible way because Jesus Christ mediated this grace in a visible way. The same goes for the priesthood and the saints. The sacrament of baptism develops into the sacrament of reconciliation. Why? Because if there is one baptism for the remission of sins, how are post-baptismal sins to be forgiven? And with reconciliation comes the practice of doing penance. Why? Because through penance one not only expresses contrition, but also participates with Christ's mediatorship in restoring what is lost. And whence purgatory? Because if someone cannot restore what is lost in this life through penance, he or she would have the possibility of restoring it in the next. Meritorious works are but the flip side of penances, and monasticism is but a regularized life dedicated to penance and merit, which, again, is but a participation in Christ's redemptive work. It is easy to get lost in such causal chains, but the power of Newman's prose comes, in part, from the cumulative weight that accrues from all his examples of how the various elements of the Christian tradition all stand and fall together. Newman reminds us today that to pick one aspect of Christianity and reject another is tantamount to a false Christianity. And conversely, we should remember that all that we believe and do as Catholics is in some way related to the core of our faith. Nothing authentically Catholic is insignificant. <laughs>